Thank you. Well, if you have your Bibles or your widgets, if you could turn to Acts 17. This morning I want to look at, obviously we're in this little 10-part series on seeking and saving, and the beginning headline on all of these studies is that our God is a seeking and saving God. Can you give me an amen on that? So we're a part of this thing called the Great Commission, and as we've talked about several times, it's not a great suggestion. Jesus said you to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So we have been given a mandate as believers to take this message of the power of God unto salvation into, into our spheres of influence. So we looked at last couple studies, how are we saved? So we talked about how we're all saved by the same way. What should we anticipate when we go out? This morning I want to talk about how do we persuade people? And I think that's a really good question. Paul was a persuader. And so we're going to look this morning at how do we persuade people? And really what we're looking at is how do we persuade people to believe the gospel? That's what we want. We want to see them come to Christ. So I'm going to quote a few times from the, the renowned theologian Charles Schultz this morning. I'm going to also answer this at least in part asking you and myself three questions. First one is, do you have a plan? How are you going to persuade people? First of all, do you have a plan? Secondly, do you have a persuasion? And then the third one is, do you have a passion for people? Those three questions I'm going to ask you and myself. I'll close with two things guaranteed to give to you, restore for you, or renew in you a plan, a persuasion, and a passion for people. So one person with a belief is equal to 99 who have only interest. Can I hear an amen? Do we believe? Are we persuaded? Do we have a plan in this persuasion in our hearts? A fanatic is one who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. Are you fanatical about the gospel? Fanatical about Jesus? So how do we persuade people? In Acts chapter 17, verse 1, again, the middle of the second missionary journey, traveling about 100 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica, verse 1, now when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating, that means proving, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Let's pray. So, Lord, we love your word. Holy Spirit, come. Teach us. Bring to remembrance whatsoever you've commanded us. May we be receptive. May we hear under the word this morning. Jesus, you said we need to hear and then apply it. Do it. And then we're building our lives on that foundation that will not be shaken. So, Lord, I pray that you take the things that I've prepared, break them fresh to us this morning, feed us, Lord. We're hungry. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Holy Spirit, take it and drive it home, we pray. We're also asking, Lord, this morning, as you are the one who seeks and saves, we're praying that, Holy Spirit, as you're moving among us, move among anyone here that doesn't know you and bring them to a place of deciding and making that decision to say yes to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So Lord, bless this time now in Jesus' name, amen. So here's Paul's ongoing, repeated plan. He looked for synagogues to go in there and teach them from the scriptures. He also, as we'll see 
this morning, he went to the marketplace and other places where there, were, where there were, weren't a Jewish audience, but Gentiles. It was his repeated plan in Cyprus, Antioch, Iconium, Thessalonica, Berea in chapter 17, Athens chapter 17, and we're going to get to Corinth, Ephesus, Jerusalem, Rome, and wherever he went, he had a plan. Do you have a plan to bring the gospel into your sphere of influence? Paul was not wishing something was happening, would happen. He was wanting something to happen. He looked for opportunities to reason with them, to explain them to them, to demonstrate or prove in order to persuade maybe one person. In their, unbelief, in their unbelief, and then coming to know Jesus Christ. So he reasoned with them, which means to many things. It means to dialogue back and forth to a conclusion. It means to dispute. It's, it's uh, interpreted, the Greek word is interpreted in many different ways in the Bible. It means to preach unto. It means to speak, simply to speak. So he was reasoning with you, saying thoroughly, making it a complete understanding as far as he was concerned. And then he explained it to them, which means to open and expound it to others. So, they, so to, to give it to them in such a reason that it begins to open up their hearts and minds to the truth that's given to us in the scriptures. So number one, do you have a plan? Very simple. Secondly, do you have a persuasion? Are you yourself persuaded from the scriptures? You see, Paul went in there and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So do you have yourself a persuasion concerning the scriptures. Now that word persuasion, or persuaded means to many things. Again, agree, assure, believe, have confidence, be confident, make a friend. Is the Bible your friend? Are you persuaded about the word of God? To obey it, to trust it, to yield to it. Are you persuaded about the power of the word of God, the inherent power of the word of God? I hope that you are. I hope that as you're coming and we go through the scriptures, you begin to gain a greater hunger to be steeped in knowing the word of God, to study yourself, to show yourself approved that you're rightly dividing the word of truth. I hope that you're persuaded in the inherent power of the word of God. The scriptures, the gospel, is described as a seed containing all that is needed to bring forth life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Jesus in the parable said, broadcast it. He said, throw it out there. He said, sow it. And that seed will find good soil and bring forth fruit. Some will not be receptive. Some the devil will rob them of it. The word of God is also described as the sword of the spirit. So in persuasion, in persuading people in the scriptures, the Bible itself, the word of God given, has an inherent power in it to bring life. It's also a sword that slays the serpent. It fells the foes. It destroys dragons. That's the word of God. So the sword of the spirit, we're just to wield it. And we need to learn how to skillfully take it out of the scabbard and begin to wield the word of God. Just start using it. I love from this sermon entitled Christ and His Coworkers by Charles Spurgeon. He said this, quote, A great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt is a very proper and right thing to do. Yet, I always notice that when there are most of the books of that kind defending the gospel is because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take into their, into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. <laughs> I love it. 
I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. The power of God unto salvation. Preach the gospel. It has in it, now to, it seems foolish, but that's what God has ordained because anybody can preach the gospel. We don't have to be steeped in any kind of diplomas, but as we just give the gospel as we know it, as we've experienced it. He, he goes on to say, never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare to approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all his adversaries, unquote. Preach the word. The word of God is also likened to a surgeon's scalpel. It's precise. Trust it into his hands, the great surgeon, and watch him cut the heart. Watch him cleanse the heart, watch him heal the heart, and watch him make the heart whole, just like he did for us. He is the elite surgeon of the spiritual needs that we have. Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and naked before the eye of him with whom we have to do. God's not, he's the surgeon. When we're sleeping, he's doing surgery, if you will. And he can see and, and divide by his word what are the thoughts and intents of our heart. Nothing else can do that. Now, the Bible says our hearts are deceitful of all things, and who can know it? Don't leave off the next verse. I, the Lord, search the hearts. I, the Lord, surge in the hearts. God does that, how? Through his word. It's precise. A mechanic was removing a cylinder head from the motor of a Harley motorcycle, Harley-Davidson motorcycle, when he spotted a well-known cardiologist in his shop. The cardiologist was there waiting for the service manager to come and take a look at his Harley, when the mechanic shouted across the garage, hey, doc, want, want, want to take a look at this? The cardiologist, a bit surprised, walked over to where the mechanic was working on the motorcycle. The mechanic straightened up, wiped his hands on a rag, and asked, so, doc, look at this engine. I open its heart, take the valves out, replace any da- repair any damage, and then put them back in, and when I finish, it works just like new. So how come I only make $40,000 a year and you make $1 million? When you're doing this, basically the same thing that I do. <laughs> the cardiologist paused, smiled, and leaned over, then whispered to the mechanic, try doing it when the engine's running. That's what God does. He's working our hearts when the engine's running. He knows our hearts. He's the great surgeon. Now, the, the uh, word of God is also likened to a sledgehammer, to a hammer. Now, I, br- I, I brought a little object lesson. This is what we call on the construction site, and I've been in construction many, many years. This is called the persuader. Okay? Now, it says in Jeremiah, the prophet who has a dream, let him tell the dream. But he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. He said, what is the chaff to the wheat? Dreams and all that stuff. That's like chaff to the word of God. He says... Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? You see, the word of God can break the hardest hearts in pieces, can shatter them in a moment. And some of you as believers have experienced the word of God hits something and it just shatters you in a good way. God takes those pieces and puts them back together in a glorious way. So this is called the persuader. Now, 
When it comes to those who oppose us, we might just want to take our persuader and be done with them. Can you hear an amen? We might want to say, I'm done. Or I want to get out my high-powered doctrine gun and blow them away with truth. Now, that's not the way of the Lord. You remember when the disciples were with Jesus and there were people that were not receiving him. You know what they said? Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and destroy them just like Elijah did? I mean, Elijah, why don't we call it down and be done? Let's make them toast. Jesus said, you don't know of what spirit you are of. The Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are to heal the brokenhearted, to set at liberty those that are captive. That's all those people that oppose us or oppose the gospel. And so they went to another village. So Jesus in the next village said, let's see if we can get it right this time. And God takes us to a lot of different villages, a lot of different people, a lot of spheres of influence. He said, let's see if we can get this right this time. Put away the sledgehammer. Now look at verse 5, because here we have it. When the, but the Jews who were not persuaded... Becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered them up, set all the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So evidently they were staying there. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They don't like what they're doing, but what a great testimony. They turned the world upside down. You see, the world is already upside down. So if you turn the upside down world upside, right side up, now you've turned it. You got it. Okay. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rules of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason, so in other words, they took, as it were, bail money, and most believe that they took money from Jason as an agreement that Paul and these guys would not come back to their city. If they ever came back, they lose their bail money. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So he posts his security. My question here is why would I want to persuade those who continually attack me, who continually lie about me, who continually stir up trouble against me, who mock me? Why would I want to persuade them? In my fleshly heart, I would not want to be with them in heaven. The only answer, there's only one answer. His name is Jesus. That's the answer. Why? Because of Jesus. Some will be persuaded and believe and some will not. Some will be fair-minded like the Bereans and look to search for more. Some will not. Some will want to listen and want to share more about it, but some will not. But here's the deal. Jesus died for the sum of both. That's who he died for. That's the answer. He died for the sins of both. And so Jesus gives us, again, his heart to then begin to persuade us in his love, not only for us, but then for other people. Verse 10. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the, into the synagogue of the Jews, the plan. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness. So notice the persuasion of the scriptures, the word. And searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, here we go again, learned that the word of God was preached by Paul and Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away, so he doesn't get hurt, to go to the sea. 
but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and notice, receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So Silas and Timothy remained in Berea with Paul. He sent to Athens. From Athens, he sends for Silas and, and Timothy to come to him. When, he, when, he, when they get to him, he is really, he's concerned about this new church in Thessalonica. So he sends Timothy back to them to find out how it's going. Timothy comes back and rejoins them in Corinth, our next city. And Paul, because of what Timothy told him, was so encouraged. And that's where he wrote the book of 1 Thessalonians. We looked at Galatians being already written. This is where, in Corinth, is where he wrote to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought, a good news, brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us. Paul's going, boy, this is awesome what happened. This relationship went deeper than I was thinking it might have. And they, and they just want to see me. And, and I'm glad to hear of your faith and your love. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. Tremendous uh, report from Timothy there in Corinth. And I wanted to look at this because we can gain a lot of insight, and we should, from what Paul wrote at these times of these missionary journeys. So, by the way, uh, extra credit, read 1 Thessalonians this week as we look at this thing. We'll go to Corinth next week. But let's read just a little, if you would. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. Again, Paul writing this about what was happening during this time. And in 1 Thessalonians 1, he says this. We give thanks to God, verse 2, always for you all making mention of you in our prayers. That is so powerful to know that I'm praying for you. We're thankful always to God for you. Remember without ceasing, notice your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. We were a part of that. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, notice, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Now in chapter two, he's gonna talk about, and I wanna, I'm just gonna breeze that in a moment, what, he, what they were like among them. That's one of the greatest persuasions, how we're living out our lives with the unbelievers. That's what Paul, Silas, and Timothy were doing. But he says, hey, I'm thanking God always because what happened stuck. And you're continuing on. So the question again, do you have a persuasion? Are you yourself persuaded by the power of the scriptures? But secondly, are you persuaded about the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? You see, Jesus, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of sin. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples, you're to wait in Jerusalem until the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We've been given the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead. He dwells in us. He is the power in us to do the things God's commanded us to do. He infuses us with power from on high. Do you, are you persuaded about the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and through your life? Are you persuaded about the power of the gospel? See, that's what Paul brought to Thessalonica. He brought the gospel. He brought the word. He said it wasn't only the word, but it was the power of the Holy Spirit that brought you to that place where you were saved. You see, the word of God is God's power to persuade. The Holy Spirit in you is God's power to persuade. The gospel through you is God's power to persuade. Are you persuaded about these powers that have been given to us? 
They are real and they are true. Notice First Thessalonians goes on to say, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with, notice, joy of the Holy Spirit. You became examples. And he just begins to list out what happened when they were there. It stuck. It happened. You're the real deal with God. Now, in chapter 2, do you have a passion for people? Paul, Titus, Paul and, and Silas and Timothy had that. But it was seen in how they lived. Notice verse 1. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But even after we had f- suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Here's a persuading impact. To, be, to persevere in preaching the gospel no matter what's going on around you. And that's it. We persevered. You saw that. That's how we're living. That's persuasive. Secondly, we were not deceitful. You know, when you're deceitful, it ruins the communication that you might have had with someone. When they find out that you haven't been true, it ruins it. It cuts it off almost immediately. He's saying we were not deceitful. We spoke to you as it pleased God, not men. We're going to give it to you direct, but it's not going to be deceitful. It's true because God knows what we've said, and we did it to please. And that's another powerful persuader. We're not trying to please people. We're pleasing God. That's how we live. He said we were not flattering you or taking advantage of you. That also is a a deal breaker. When we're flattery, flattery is, you know, you know, it's empty. We're not taking advantage of you. He said, we're not seeking glory from you or making demands on you. This has everything to do with you and Jesus. He said, we were gentle and affectionate and caring towards you. All these things in 1 Thessalonians chapter. This is how we came. This is what you saw. This is what persuaded, at least in part, your decision to follow after the same God that we serve. He said another one, verse 9. We worked hard and long to provide for ourselves. We weren't coming as moochers. <laughs> we weren't coming to get your money. We weren't coming of greediness. We were coming and we worked hard and long to provide for our own needs. Tremendous persuader. We, here's one, I love it. We behaved ourselves. <laughs> Verse 10, we behaved ourselves. We're always saying, behave yourself. Well, we behaved ourselves among you. Verse 11, I love this. Let's read it. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, 1 Thessalonians 2, 11, as a father does his own children, that, we, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We loved you as our own children. What a deep love. And this is what they saw. This is what they experienced. It's persuasive. Do you have a passion for people? Do you have a passion for these people in your sphere of influence? Do you have a passion for those in your predetermined boundaries? Good question. Do you have a passion for people? Now, here's the theologian Charles Schultz. He said, you a doctor? Ha, that's a big laugh. You could never be a doctor. You know why? Because you don't love mankind. That's why. I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. (laughs) Can you hear an amen? (laughs) I love mankind, but it's people. You see, your sphere of influence is where it really is the telling place. So verse 16, now while Paul waited for them in Athens... His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that a city was given over to idols. Paul's heart was moved by the idolatry and the emptiness. In fact, it was a whole city filled to empty. 30,000 idols strewn around. It was said it's part of the, 
It was, hard, it was easier to find an idol than a man in Athens. It was, there was a very religious city, 30,000 idols. Easier to find, again, idols. Religion was not a topic to be avoided. They loved to talk about religion, all kinds, hot topic, not, not trying to, well, let's not talk about religion. A very educated city. It was the intellectual center of learning in that city. One of the greatest uh, universities of the ancient world was in Athens. It was the center of philosophy, literature, science. So you're talking about a very educated city, a very religious city. Many of the world's great philosophers and thinkers lived there. Sophocles, Euripides, Plato, and Socrates, among others. I hope I'm saying the word, their names right. <laughs> but here's the deal. They were a very confused city. With all the religion they had, all the intellect, they were confused. They didn't know what God to worship, so they made sure they worshiped them all as you went through the city. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentiles, his plan, notice, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there, the center of the city, where all the marketplaces and all the government buildings, that's where he went, down to Seattle. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Now, a babbler is literally the seed picker. So the picture is like a bird in the park. They go from crust to crust, and they claim them as their own. They make them their own. So what they're, they're labeling Paul is, he's a man who's just grabbing thoughts from here and here and making them his own, and that's what he's doing. All these, you know, resurrection. Hey, hardly, hardly. Paul knew that what he believed was true to the core. When he even rebelled against it, he came to that place where he wasn't just picking up pieces. He was picking up the scriptures, the word of God. He had a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He was hardly going around and nitpicking. The Epicureans' philosophy. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That was their philosophy. Don't worry, be happy. It's all, for them, it was all about indulgence because there's no afterlife. And so... Happiness is banishing all fears of divine intervention in life or punishment after death. So they said, when you die, you simply are, your, your, your atoms will just be dispersed and you're done. It's a philosophy that's, very, that's held by many today, always has been. So the chief pleasure, the chief good was pleasure. Do whatever you can to satisfy and, and please yourself. They live for the moment. You only go around once in life, go for all the gusto you can. That's the Epicurean philosophy. Now, the Stoic, as the word says, Stoic, their philosophy was to mellow out, chill out. Don't care. Be detached. It, for them, it was all about indifference to the things of life. The chief good, they said, is virtue. So man cannot know virtue, though, who is emotionally involved. So be disciplined. Free yourself from anything that is emotional, sensual, or material. That's the Stoic philosophy. Show no emotion and don't be moved by anything. They sought through self-discipline to be without feelings, untouched, unmoved, no allowance for pain or sorrow. You just got to put that aside. Sounds like a sad way to live, doesn't it? Their attitude was one of ultimate resignation. It was fatalistic. The Stoic philosophy, apathetic. Take whatever comes, but don't be moved by it. And the result, the fruit of this philosophy, this thinking, was tremendous spiritual pride and self-sufficiency. 
I can handle it. I'm the captain of my soul. Pastor John Corson put it this way. The Epicureans said, enjoy life. The Stoics said, endure life. But neither of them considered eternal life. I like that. The Epicureans, he said, were couch potatoes. The Stoics, on the other hand, were spiritual aerobic instructors. This is how you do it. So those are the two philosophies that he's facing, much like what we face today. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. So this is something new to them. For you are bringing some strange things to our way. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. Now the Areopagus, it's the name of a bare rocky place, some 377 feet immediately northwest of the Acropolis of Athens. Separated from it by a narrow slope, which we'll see in a moment. Steps cut into the rock lead to the summit, where benches rough and hewn, these can still be seen as you see today. Now, in ancient times, the Areopagus was where the court assembled. The supreme body of the judicial and legislative branches, the senate, if you will, or the city council. They exercised from their jurisdictions in matters of religion and education. So they're making the laws, if you will. So Paul is being brought before them, these philosophers, to explain his message before those in authority. And then from them, he might receive one of two things, either freedom to continue to preach, or he would be censored and silenced. So that's what's taking place on the Areopagus. Notice verse 21. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Now, Ecclesiastes says this, verse 1, verse 9. That which, was, that which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. So someone said this, if it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. In other words, if it's really true, it's been true all the time. There are always like something new. And that is indicative of our culture. What new thing is or What can I now get distracted? We are a distracted uh, culture on the newest thing. Hey, there's nothing new under the sun. And the thing that we need to do is there's something that's very old. In fact, he is the supreme being of the universe who is without age. And he is the one who we want to know what is it that he wants us to understand and believe. Verse 22, he's addressing the Areopagus. Paul stood in the, midst, in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For I was passing through and understanding the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. What a glorious way to start. He builds a bridge immediately. He builds this bridge, even quoting their own poets. He says, hey, I walked around your city. He's identifying with what they saw every day. See, I saw, and I see all these idols. And then I saw this one called to the unknown God. Do you have a passion? For the people in your sphere of influence, wherever that might be throughout the day. Here's a highly, here, here is a city full of highly religious people and yet confused and blind to the truth, to what they worship. And just in case they missed their God, 
they made one to the unknown God, just in case they missed any of the 30,000. They were, hey, if we missed any, we're going to pray it to the unknown God. Now, I want to give you the, core, the, the opposite as far as this whole idea. Hey, if we've missed any of the gods, we're going to make one to the unknown God just so he's not mad at us. Paul said in Romans, I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor, and then he says, nor any other creature, in case I missed any, nor any other creature, I'm persuaded that none of these things can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That's how he wrapped up Romans 8. I am persuaded, and if I've missed any other thing that might, it can't, any other creature. That's the opposite of the one who believes in Christ. Persuaded about any other thing. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing, nothing. So here's a city dedicated to truth, but clear confusion on every street corner and everyone that was trotting those, that pavement. Clear confusion. Religion was relegated to personal taste. He embraced whatever works for you, God. It's kind of like our taste in clothes or the color of our house. There's no right, no wrong to it. And so they'd say, well, if it's Hinduism, that's okay. If it's Buddhism, that's okay. No big deal. It's like preferring Big Macs over Big and Tasties. What do you like? But Paul said this, you can't have it your way. You can't do it. In other words, there is truth, and that's what I want to bring to you. In one of Charles Schultz's peanut comic strips, Linus and Charlie Brown are engaged in serious conversation. I have a theological question, says Linus. When you die and go to heaven, are you graded on a percentage or on a curve? On a curve, naturally, Charlie responds. Linus asks puzzledly, how can you be so sure? (laughs) Charlie brightly answers, I'm always sure about things that are a matter of opinion. (laughs) And we can be sure of so many things that are a matter of opinion. Can I hear an amen? Here's another one from him. I hear you're writing a book on theology. I hope you have a good title. I have the perfect title. Has it ever occurred to you that you might be wrong? Theology is the study of God. What God are you theologizing? Has it ever come to you that you might be wrong? And Paul is bringing into the Athenian, he's bringing, I want to talk to you about the unknown God, the one that you worship without knowing. I want to tell you about him. He's the God of truth. So do you have a passion for people? Here it is. Simply share or proclaim your passion for God with people. Tell them about your God, the passion you have for God. Paul simply proclaims the God whose love had captured his heart. And it's the same for us. Paul said, the love of Christ constrains me. We know the love of God. Now, I came across something that was absolutely fascinating to me. I hadn't seen it before at all, but I started thinking, you know, Paul's moment, he said, I, I'm constrained by the love of Christ. And I know that the love of God is what we communicate all the time. For God so loved the world and all these things. But it's a very interesting thing I, I really stumbled on. Love is not mentioned one time in this sermon. But not only that, the word love is not found in the whole book of Acts. I said, what? That can't be. Here's the book on missions. Here's the book on the, the church. Here's the one on getting the, how they're getting the, the great the gospel out. And yet, and you, this is in my New King James Version translation, if you will. But there are many different Greek words that, are that we, we would translate as love. But in the book of Acts, I found zero. Now, 
in the Gospels. 91 times spread out in every gospel, the word love appears. From Romans to Revelation, every epistle has the word love in it to some degree, 194 total. But the book of Acts is lacking it. And I said, Lord, that is so interesting to me. You see, what Paul does here, if we're taking notes on his message, I should say God's message, he's saying to the Athenians three things he attributes to the unknown God. I want to tell you about this unknown God. He Three attributes of God, and I want to tell you about them. And they are this. God is great. He's a great God. God is good. He is a good God. And God is gracious. He is a gracious God. These three attributes together speak volumes, shout out, God loves me, but defined, and he is great. Now, he's great, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's good. But God is not only great, he is good. And God is not only great and good, but it doesn't necessarily lend that he would be gracious. A great and good person doesn't necessarily need to be gracious. But God is not only great, he's not only good, he is gracious. And I say, Lord, Thank you for that little nugget in my heart. You are great, you are good, and you are gracious. He talks about the greatness of God and the goodness of God and that God is a God of grace, not punishment. Not, not, he's not condemning. He's a God of grace. He wants to be gracious, gracious to us every morning, every evening, all throughout our lives. He is a gracious God. And I say, thank you. All-powerful, all-knowing, supreme, creator of all things, sustainer of all of life. He's good. And yet he's given to us. Let's, I, I should go to the, oh, here's another one. Here's another theologian. You've taken a great load off my mind. Sound theology has a way of doing that. Can you hear an amen? When we really know the unknown God, we know he's good, he's great, he's good, he's gracious. It takes a load off my mind. That that is the God that I serve. That's the God who saved me. That's the God who loves me. Is the God who's great and good and gracious. And he's been that for me. He's all three wrapped up in love. Do you have a plan? Do you have a persuasion? Do you have a passion for people? He proclaims first the greatness of God. God who made the world and everything in it. He's creator God. Now, if you're confused on this matter... You will be confused on all matters of religion and truth. He is creator. You see, in algebra, if the first number's wrong, the whole equation's wrong. You got to start out with the right. He is creator. He, he is not worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything. God doesn't need anything. We can't add anything to him. He's the ultimate self-sufficient one. So he doesn't need anything since he gives to all life, Breath and all things. God is a giver. He's good. He sustains life. Supreme over all, yet acutely concerned for all. He proclaims the grace of God. Verse 26. And he's made from one blood every nation men of men to dwell on the earth. Adam, one blood. And so from Adam, God created him in the image of God. We are his descendants. He rebelled against God. But God didn't just abandon the whole thing when it went wrong. You see, because he's great and he's good and he's gracious. He didn't wind it up and leave it go and wait for it just to tickle out. 
He is involved, and that's what he says here. He has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in hopes they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own prophets have said, for we are also his offspring. You see, God is a present God. He's not far away. God is a personal God. He is a father God. And to those who believe, receive Christ, we, are, we have the right to be called the children of God. And so he's appointed these pre-appointed. God's put people where they are that they might know him as Father God. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought to, not to think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. And, and, and the psalmist in Psalm 115 said, Not unto us, Lord, not just, but unto your name be the glory because you're merciful. They're idols. They have mouths they can't speak, ears they can't hear, eyes they can't see. They can't even mutter with them. They're dead and empty. There's no relationship possible with them. But with our God, he is the eternal God. He does whatever we want. We can have relationship with his eternal God. That's what Paul's saying. He's a personal God. He's a father God. And then verse 30, he is a forgiving God. He's a forgiving God. These times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection, Jesus is alive. He is risen. He is uh, up in heaven right now. He will be coming back to reign over the earth in power and glory as king of kings and lord of lords. But the first time he came, he came as a suffering servant to save us from our sins. You see, God also is the judge and jury. And the jury's already been out, come back. Sin, yes, guilty, but pardon, yes, attained, finished. He overlooked all of our ignorance and sin until he finished that work. And he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God through him. God put on him all of our iniquities. The Lamb of God who bears the sin of the world, that was our sin. God took care of the problem. He's judge and jury. He judged his son there. He, took, he satisfied his wrath so he could release his mercy at the cross. What a persuader that is. Repentance is a gift from God. Last night when we had our prayer huddle before the service, uh, Ronald shared that thought. And I hadn't really thought about it. And I, I knew I was going to be talking on repentance. And he said, we think of repentance, I'll, I'll paraphrase it. He said, we think of repentance as something bad. No, no, no. Repentance is something good. It's a gift from God. It's through repentance, turning from sin, but not that, only that, but turning to God, that we find forgiveness. Not only as an unbeliever, but then every time, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Whenever we turn from sin and turn to God, he forgives us. How? Through repentance. Through repentance. We turn from my, I turn from my sin and turn to him. The only one who can and does forgive me is God. So God created you and me with an ability to believe what we want to believe. I believe in the unknown God. He's great. He's good. And he's gracious. He's a, he's, he's, a, he's a personal God. He's a father God. He's a forgiving God. He's a gracious God to me. The Imperials said this in old song. It won't be old Judah that's sitting on the throne. And it won't be old Muhammad that's calling us home. And it won't be Harry Krishna that plays that trumpet tune. Because we're going to see the sun, not Reverend Moon. That's who we're going to stand before. Do all roads lead to heaven? 
Are there many ways to God? Salvation is not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of repentance. Religion is man's way to salvation. But let me say this. Man's way, there's no way. Repentance is God's one way. God himself is the way, the truth, and the life. Do you believe that? And when they heard the resurrection, some believed, some mocked, while others said, well, here again in this matter, Paul departed. Here's the deal. In all our persuasion, all our desire, we've got to leave the results to God. He's going to do what he does if we can get a hold of this whole idea of how do we persuade people. Number one, do you have a plan? Secondly, do you have a persuasion? Third, do you have a passion for people? Now, I'm going to close with two things. Guaranteed to give to you, restore for you, or renew in you a plan, a persuasion, and a passion for people. Two things. Don't leave them out. The first one is the name of Jesus. It's the name of Jesus. In other words, frequently in your conversations, say his name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. It's through Jesus in prayers, in Jesus' name. Don't, that's the first thing, the name of Jesus. People need persuading about a person, not a philosophy. The second thing is the cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, keep the cross center in every persuasion in your life and the lives of those that you're talking to. We need the cross. And at the cross are the answers for all the questions I might have. It's at the cross in the name of Jesus. So those two things, keep them top list. The name of Jesus and the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul said to the Galatians, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For God made the division in my life. I can walk with him. And I thought of this song as we close. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of Syrian loss. The Father turns his face away. As wounds with mar, which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. The final verse, I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain? This always hits me. Why should I gain from his reward? I do not have an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Are you persuaded? You have a plan? Do you have a persuasion? You have a passion for me? I say, let's get out and tell the world about our great, good, and gracious God and his love for us. So, Lord, let's bow our heads, if we might, in our hearts. Father, we thank you that in Jesus' name, we have forgiveness. We have salvation. We have this new life of the Spirit. And through the cross, our sins were taken care of. The work was finished. And so as our heads are bowed and our eyes closed and praying, believers praying, I want to give an opportunity 
anyone here who does not know Jesus yet, and I always like to add yet, you're not yet saved from your sin. The most important decision that you'll ever make is that decision about your eternal destiny. So saying yes to Jesus will give you that assurance of what the gospel proclaims, that if you believe in your heart in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You confess with your mouth, believe in your heart the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. It's very simple. It's the gospel. That Jesus died for your sin, but you've never come to be forgiven. That Jesus was buried and rose again for you, that you might know God, but you've never come to receive resurrection life. So three things I'm going to ask you to do. Simple things. First, to raise up your hand and say, I, I, need to get, I need to say yes to Jesus. I need to get right with God. My sins have been troubling me. I have this emptiness in my heart. I've been battling this decision maybe for maybe years. Maybe it's been weeks. Maybe it's been one week. But you know the battle is there, and we know that well too. We're praying. I ask you to raise up your hand. Then we ask you to stand up. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. Why is that important? It's important because that's what God is, you know on your heart you need to do in obeying God. And when you stand to make that public confession, you are now being obedient to God. And all of those excuses, all of those fears, all the running you've been doing will end as you're now obedient to God. And you know now you've done the most important thing you could ever do in life, and that is to receive Christ as your Savior. So I'm going to ask you to stand up, and then I'm going to ask you to walk up to the, one of the two tables on either side. And there's people there that will pray for you and pray with you as you confess you're a sinner. You ask God to forgive you. You ask Him to bring His Holy Spirit in your life and give you new life. And you thank Him for what He's done. That's what they'll do at those tables. So as we're praying, just for another minute, if that's you today, I'm going to ask you just to make, raise your hand up so I can see it. I want to acknowledge that. I want to pray for you. If that's you today here, you want to say yes, you want to get right with God today. You're done running. God's going to keep pursuing you. I guarantee you that. He loves you. We're praying. That's you. If you're, you're hesitant. Now, today is the day of salvation for you. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, if you need prayer, maybe, maybe you're not just not ready to come to Christ yet, but you still want to get some prayer. The tables are open there. The people that are there to pr will pray with you. They'll also pray for you this whole week about those matters on your heart. So while we're singing this last song or after service, please go over there because there's people that are there for that specific purpose, to pray for your, whatever on your heart today. So as we sing this last song, as we always do, let's just stand during it, and I'll come up and close us at the end. <laughs>